Podcastle, episode number 75, for October 20th, 2009. The Curandero and the Swede, a tale from 1001 American Nights, by Daniel Abraham. Hi, this is Dave Thompson. A few years back, in October of 2009, Podcastle released Daniel Abraham's The Curandero and the Swede, A Tale of a Thousand and One American Nights. Unfortunately, there were some pretty serious technical issues, and for many of you, the narration was unlistenable. Well, it's taken us some time, but I'm very pleased to say that with Mr. Abraham's blessing, we've got a brand new recording of it for all of you that will hopefully be easier on your ears. Actually... It's a pretty good story. So head on onto the porch, light a cigar, and here's Alistair with the real introduction. Hello, welcome to Podcastle. I'm Alistair, and this week's story comes to us from Daniel Abraham. Daniel has been nominated for the Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Awards, and won the International Horror Guild Award. He also writes as MLN Hanover, and Unclean Spirits was published under that name, whilst the Long Prize Quartet were written under the name Daniel Abraham. This story, Daniel says, is intended to be the first in the series of 1001 American Nights, and whilst the others haven't been written yet, the characters are all sitting, patiently, waiting, drinking their coffee, and waiting for their cue. And now it's time to pull the curtain back and present The Curandero and the Swede, by Daniel Abraham. The Curandero and the Swede, a tale from the 1001 American Nights, by Daniel Abraham. The night I took Abby to meet my Atlanta family, we spent about three hours beforehand going over the rules. The dress sleeves had to cover her tattoos at all times. She couldn't say anything snarky about the casserole, even if it totally deserved it. Her analysis of Bill Clinton as reincarnation of Elvis was funny among our mutual friends, but wouldn't go over so well with Amma Hoffman. It would be hard enough for the family to accept that I'd propose to a Yankee girl without rubbing their noses in it. Abby's smile got more and more fixed, and her eyes started to get the glazed look of a deer facing a semi. When we pulled up at Aunt Mary's, I started to think the whole thing might have been a mistake. Abby squeezed my hand hard as we walked up the drive. This is going to be all right, she said, as if she was telling me. And all through the meal, the announcement and dessert, it was. Then the time came in the dance that was unspoken family tradition for the women to kick the men out onto the porch. The late August heat had convinced Aunt Mary to pull out the wading pool and fill it with the garden hose. All the kid cousins between five years old and fifteen were shrieking and splashing and hopping in and out of the water in the darkening twilight. Inside, Mama and Aunt Mary led the rest of the family in singing hymns while Alma Hopman cleaned away the remains of the wrapping paper and snuck the last few squares of sheet cake. Between these two celebrations, one pagan and the other pious, was the back porch and Uncle Dab. So, boy, engaged, are you? He said with a wide grin. Big news. I craned my neck. The harmonies of Christian praise floated in the dim air like pollen. I could just make out Abby's voice still finding its place within the music. The black window showed a small slice of the living room, but her lemon cream meeting the family dress wasn't there. I hoped the tattoo hadn't slipped. Abby had a way of unconsciously pushing up her sleeves. Yeah, I said. I suppose it is. Uncle Dab lit one of his little black cigars, then leaned back, white hair haloed by smoke. I ever tell you how I met Mary? Uncle Dab asked. The grain boat that caught fire in her father's truck, I said, nodding. It was one of Dab's favorite stories, but he told it more times than I could count. It was always full of comedy and romance and smart-mouth remarks made at just the right time. I knew from my mother that it skipped over the fact that Mary had been pregnant by someone besides Dab at the time and had lost the baby. He took being cut off with good grace, nodding and smiling as if he'd gone through the whole adventure. One of the older cousins, Paula or Stephanie, laughed, the sound carrying over the piano. I wonder what questions Aunt Mary would ask Abby once the music stopped and how Abby would answer. Dab drew on the cigar, the ember flaring, then considered me. So why don't you tell me about how you met the love of your life, he said. There's 
Not really much to tell, I said. When I got back from Macon, I took a job at Paul Kinnison's place. Abby worked there too, and one thing just led to another. I shrugged. One of the older kid cousins shrieked, clutching a recent breast with one arm and splashing a younger boy with the other. The droplets caught the gold of the sunset. Dab settled in his chair, smacked his lips once, and nodded. I had the sense that I'd disappointed him. You know, there was this fellow I knew when I was working at the machine shop, Dab said. We called him the Swede. Little fella, maybe five foot five, five foot six on a good day. Blackest man I have ever known. You know how most folks we call him black? They're anything from dark brown to one of what Graham used to call high yaller? Well, not the Swede. He was black like a dog's nose. So black, he was damn near blue. He used to tell it that his people escaped as soon as the slave ships dropped anchor, headed up north until it got so cold they just froze in place, could trace his family back seven generations without a single white person. He was the first one in his family to leave Minnesota. Nice fella. Good machinist, too. Anyway, he'd been down here about six years when I knew him. Had a girl he was seeing name of Corrine. She was pretty. Had this line of dark little moles, just like pinpricks, all along her jaw. Made me think of the sort of bangles they put on women's veils in Baghdad. She'd come by the shop sometimes, and we'd have to make him stop working until she went away, for fear he'd get distracted and lose a finger. He'd been seeing her for maybe six months when Martin Luther King got killed. That was before you were born, so I don't expect you to understand it, and honest to God, I'd never say this outside the family, but... The blacks have got a whole different country they live in. Even someone like the Swede who worked with us and drank beer with us and all. Now, I was sorry to hear about it when King died, and I'm not ashamed to say it, but it wasn't that much to me. For the blacks, though, Dab shook his head. It was different for them. Well, with everything else that was going on back then, King's getting shot was like Kennedy in Dallas and the planes in New York all wrapped up in one. The Swede was living in one of them shotgun houses over by the bend in the river. Little place with five rooms all back to back in a line, and it always smelled like old cabbage. I never did know why. When it happened, he was in the front room drinking a beer and listening to the radio news. Corrine was in the back, sleeping a little. He heard about it and just finished off his beer, went back and told her. She didn't believe him at first, and then she did. Thing was, the Swede didn't talk much about it. He just nodded and sucked his teeth and had another beer. It was like he'd heard about a team losing a baseball game. He came into work next shift. You wouldn't have known a goddamn thing had happened. I figured that he was just taking it like me. Sad to hear it, but you know how it is. Life goes on. It was Corrine who saw different. She was spending nights with him. They weren't married or nothing, but... There was an understanding between them. So anyway, she was seeing him and his all together on a regular basis, and none of us sure as hell were, so she was the one that found the bumps. Now, later on, I saw it a little myself, and I've seen my fair share of rashes and bites and whatnot. This was different. Looked like the Swede had marbles under his skin. Big, angry-looking bumps, and thing was, they moved. Each one of them shifted and kicked like a baby. Started right at the top of his plumber's crack like he was going to grow a tail, and every week or two there'd be a little new one starting up. Climbed up his spine one at a time and out through his sides and down his legs. He said they didn't hurt or itch or nothing, they were just there. Corrine didn't think much of that, I can tell you. She had a sister who died of cancer when she was young, and she looked at those bumps and knew that wasn't right. She'd hound him and pick at him and yell until the Swede went to see some doctor. Thing was, this was the end of the 60s, start of the 70s. We were all making pretty good money, but it wasn't great, and he was a black. Maybe that doesn't mean now what it used to, but they didn't have a lot of trust for what you'd call the medical establishment. They hadn't found out about those doctors who were down in Tuskegee, but they weren't dumb. The blacks knew that white doctors didn't care all that much about a black fellow's bumps. So the Swede went to a few and they told him to rub grease on it before bed or to stop drinking liquor or whatever other easy advice they found to hand. Nothing ever came of it. The bumps just kept spreading out. As far as the Swede was concerned, it was just part of who he was. It didn't all come to a crisis, as you'd say, until after Thanksgiving. 
Well, we just got Nixon out of the White House, so that made it 74. Corrine and the Swede were at his place one night, and they were curled up together in bed. It was cold that year, so they were laying right on top of one another, and the way it was, Corrine had her ear up against one of the Swede's bumps, and it called her a cunt. Soft little voice, but full of hate, and she always swore it spoke as clear as you or me. You can imagine that was the end of that. Corrine got her things in a suitcase and went to live with her sister. Nothing the Swede said drew any water with her. He had to do something, but he'd been to all the doctors any of us knew about. Poor S.O.B. didn't know where to turn. Now it happened the Swede knew a guy right around then who'd been a trucker down in New Mexico the year before. Steve Williams, his name was. He wasn't a bad fellow, but he'd had some trouble with getting drunk and stoned and fighting and such. Spent a few months in prison and it made it hard to find steady work. So Williams was pretty happy to get a job hauling fruit from Albuquerque up to the Four Corners area. Now, you've heard about Route 66, but what you might not know is there used to be a Route 666 coming off it in Gallup and heading up all the way to Colorado. Long, thin road with a lot of dead people. The Devil's Highway, they called it. And a lot of people wouldn't drive the route because of it having a bad reputation. Williams wasn't what you'd call a religious fella. He figured 666 to be the number before 667 and devil be damned. And maybe there was something to that, because what happened to him didn't have much to do with the devil or Jesus or either one. He'd been going up from Albuquerque on a night run. Now, that wasn't something he usually did. The highway there was two lane and no barrier in between, so a trucker got sleepy or drunk, there was nothing to keep him from slipping over into oncoming traffic. And more than that, it was a damn lonesome piece of road. Between Gallup and Farmington, there was about a hundred miles of reservation. No lights, not many gas stations, and what there was didn't stay open late. This was right before the CB radios got popular, so there wasn't even people to talk to. But the cargo had come in to Albuquerque late, and it had to be delivered by morning, so Williams gassed up and headed out. It was the first part of summer, and a black night, no moon to speak of. Williams was tired, and truth to tell, he was feeling a little sorry for himself. His lady friend had taken off a couple of weeks before, and he didn't have much prospect of getting her back. There's nothing like an empty road and cold and darkness to make a man feel the loss of a woman. Well, he was about an hour out of Gallup, and he saw a girl by the side of the road. With his headlights the only thing out there, it was like she just popped up out of nowhere. She was an Indian girl, as you might expect, out there on the reservation. Maybe 18, maybe 19. Well, he figured she was hitching, and if she wasn't, she might still rather not walk all the way to Shiprock. He could use the company, and if it was a girl with a sympathetic ear, well, then all the better. He pulled the rig over to the shoulder and stopped. Now, a rig that size in that part of the country kicks up a fair cloud of dust when it stops, so William wasn't all that surprised that the girl didn't come running right when he opened the passenger's door. He just waited until the dust thinned out, but even then no one came up. She wasn't in the mirrors either. Williams hopped out and looked back at where she'd been, but there was no one there, and not even a weed thick enough to hide behind. He calls out a few times, says as he was just heading up to Shiprock and thought she might want to lift. No one so much as spits at him. He climbs back up in his rig, gets ready to head back out, and then all of a sudden he gets this sick feeling. Starts thinking, what if I hit her and just didn't notice? What if she's under the wheels right now? So he climbs back out and looks around, slow and careful, but she isn't there. Eventually he gives up and heads back out, and that might have been the end of it, but it wasn't. That night Williams had a dream, a nightmare, and a bad one. He was in the desert and he knew the way you do in a dream that he was walking away from the place he wanted to get to. Heading east when home was west, like. Every time he tried to turn around though, someone hit him. Spun him back east. It wasn't a short dream, it was one of those kind that go on all night. So all night Williams was driven across the desert like an animal. Sometimes his friends and family were there with him, getting whipped just like him. Sometimes he was all by himself and he started feeling a powerful hatred for the fellow that was hitting him. Then, just a little before dawn, he turned and got hold of the guy, said afterwards that he could feel the cloth of the man's shirt in his fist, just like it was really happening. Thing was, 
The fellow he'd grabbed onto looked just like him. It was him. Now, you might think that would have woken him up, but the dream wasn't done with him yet. He took a knife and he started slashing this guy, started killing him. He could feel the knife catching against the bone, could hear the fellow trying to breathe, smelled the blood. He knew it was himself he was killing and he just didn't care. Well, he woke up in the back of his rig, just like he'd gone to sleep, and the first thing he thought sober as a Baptist judge was, holy shit, that girl's gonna kill me. Now, Williams wasn't the superstitious type. He got up and went out, ate his eggs and bacon, and drank his truck stop coffee and tried to laugh it off, same as anyone would. He told himself that whoever she was out on the road, she'd spooked him with that vanishing act was all. He'd had a bad night of it and be done. It was about a week later he saw the girl again. It was broad daylight this time. He was heading back south, going into Gallup this time, and there she was, standing by the side of the road. She didn't have a thumb out or nothing. She was just standing there, watching the truck come on. Williams got a cold feeling on his neck and his heart started tripping over like someone had pulled a gun on him. He was a big fella, and he'd been in his fair share of fights, but that Indian girl just standing there on the side of the road looking up at him? Well, she scared the piss out of him. He gunned the engine and sped straight past her fast as he could. Thing was, five miles on, there she was again. He passed that girl four times before he got to Gallup. He sat in a booth at the truck stop for three hours straight, not wanting to get back on the road. He was afraid to be alone, you see. If he hadn't been more scared of being on the road after dark, I expect he'd never have left. Well, he got back to Albuquerque and went to his boss and said straight up that he was never doing that run again. If it meant quitting, then he'd quit. The boss didn't like that much, but Williams was a pretty good driver otherwise. They worked out a different run for him, heading south to Las Cruces. Williams thought that was the end of it, but he was wrong again. The dream kept coming back, you see. First every week or so, and then more and more often until by the end of September, he wasn't getting any rest when he slept. He'd wake up in the morning half sick with dread and half still feeling the joy from killing the other version of himself from the dream. It was September 4th of 70 that he ran his rig off the road. He had his heater on in the cabin and the radio was playing something soft. Country music or some Fleetwood Mac or some such. And then just like that, he woke up going 80 on the shoulder and heading for a ditch. He wrestled the truck down slow enough that when he hit, it didn't kill him. But it messed up the rig and he had to wait half a day to get someone out there to tow him. He was sure of it now. That Indian girl, whatever she was, didn't care whether he was driving old 6-6 or not. She'd seen him, she'd heard his voice, and sure as kittens in the springtime, she was going to see him dead. Now, back in those days, there was a fellow who used to hang out at a diner in Abiquiu. An Anglo, which was strange enough in that part of New Mexico. What's more, he was a queer, too. The locals put up with him, though. I won't say they were afraid of him, but they had respect. Said that when a man was different one way, sometimes he was different other ways, too. The way it was, someone needed advice about spirits or how to get someone to fall in love with them or whatever. They'd go to this little greasy spoon out in Abiquiu, sit at the back table, and the queer would tell them things. Sometimes it was things they wanted to know, sometimes it wasn't. 6th of October, same day the Israeli Air Force started bombing the shit out of Egypt, old Steve Williams got his rig back from the shop and drove into Abiquiu. By then, Williams didn't look like the big, tough SOB he used to be. He hadn't slept for shit in weeks, and he was scared all the time. His skin had that gray look meat gets right when it starts to turn, and he had the standing shakes. The place was a pit. Smelled like they were still cooking in last month's grease, and the linoleum tile was all chipped and bleached out from the sun. And there at the end of the aisle, back by the men's room, was this fella in a white silk shirt and a great big blonde pompadour haircut, drinking a cup of coffee. Williams walks up to him and the queer nods and smiles at the bench across the booth. Just like they were old friends and he'd been waiting on him. Afterwards, Williams said that sound changed when you sat down with the queer. The radio from the kitchen, the bells on the diner's door, the tire noise off the highway. Everything got soft, like they were farther away than they really were. The windows looked out on the parking lot, but they were so greasy 
Everything out there was in soft focus. Afterwards, William said that sound changed when you sat down with the queer. The radio from the kitchen, the bells on the diner's door, the tire noise off the highway. Everything got soft, like they were farther away than they really were. The windows looked out on the parking lot, but they were so greasy. Everything out there was in soft focus, like when they'd shoot through gauze in the old movies. The only thing that seemed real was the queer and his cup of black coffee. You've seen her, is what the queer says first thing out. Williams hadn't even told him anything, and so the queer comes out with this and William just nods. That's going to be hard for you, the queer says. She's angry. So William says, Thing is, I don't know what she's angry at me for. The queer smiles just like a woman and puts his hand out, touches Williams on the wrist and says, Of course you don't, sweetie. You never even heard of the long walk. And so the queer tells Williams about it. Way back in the middle 1800s, there'd been a couple of decades worth of playing cowboys and Indians for real. Lots of dead people on both sides and lots of anger. Well, come 1863, Kit Carson got sent out to accept the surrender of the Navajo. Only when he got to the place he was supposed to be, no Navajo showed up to surrender. Carson took it personal. Next few years, he started burning Indian crops, starving them out, and eventually they did start giving up. That's where the long walks came in. Back then, the Navajo were all through northern Arizona and New Mexico, on up into the south part of Colorado. Well, the government's bright idea was to get them the hell off that land, break their connection to it, turn them into exiles. So they started herding them off to Fort Sumner and the Bosque Redondo, 300 miles on foot. Hundreds of them died along the way, and when they got where they were going, it was like a little slice of hell. 9,000 people squeezed into 40 square miles. Not enough food, not enough water. Maybe the men at Fort Summer didn't like the Indians. Maybe they just didn't care one way or the other. Either way, the starving never stopped. Now, the story was that in the middle of this internment camp, there was a group of people, women mostly, but some men too, who were trying to do something about it. There's this journal from one of the soldiers at Fort Sumner that talks about a girl named Sakio leading some kind of pagan ceremony in the summer of 1867. The details were scarce, but you can tell from the tone of it that the fellow was disturbed by it. Said there were sounds coming out of the woods after that. Voices, but not the kind you heard from people. And lights at night where there wasn't anyone to make a light. Well, the general at Fort Sumner cracked down. Fifty Navajo got killed over it, including the girl Sakio. But things only got worse. There were rumors about Indians whose shadows moved, even when they were standing still. Soldiers started dying in strange ways. One fellow hung himself from the rafters in a stable, only there wasn't a ladder to get up there. The official story was he'd climbed up the side of the wall, but them soldiers who went and kept the Indians in line said the story in the camp was he'd been hung by the spirit of Sakio. One way or another, it was about a year after they did whatever it was they did that night, that the Lieutenant General W.T. Sherman signed the Treaty of Bosque Redondo and sent them back. They started another long walk, but this time they were going home. People said they saw Sakio walking with them. There's power in a return from exile, is what the queer says. It makes the spirit stronger, but it does not bring peace. And William says, What's it got to do with me? I didn't put anyone off any land. So the queer sighs and nods and looks out the window. He's looking real sad, and he says, Violence and death have narrowed her. Only revenge has meaning for her now. Now Williams was just about shitting himself right there. The queer's telling him there's a hundred-year-old ghost has it out for him. Well, he knew that, but all this talk about vengeance and that soldier hung up from the rafters and no way to get up there was bad enough. But more than that, he understood the dream now. He was dreaming this Sakyo's world, what she went through. And he'd felt just how happy she was going to be, watching him die. So he asked the queer, What the sweet fuck am I supposed to do about this? And the queer says, Give her mercy meaning as well. And then he picks up a copy of the morning's newspaper and hands it to Williams. Says, You'll need this. So Williams walks back out of the diner into the parking lot, gets in his rig and heads off. 
He didn't have the first idea what he was going to do, except he was pretty clear that running wasn't going to help, and whatever this girl Sakio had turned into, she was way stronger than he was. For about 80 miles, he didn't even think about that newspaper or why the queer thought he'd need it. Well, there wasn't any question that he was going to have to face her down, and most likely on her own territory. Williams, he put up at a hotel outside Española for about a week, thinking and stewing and not sleeping if he could help it. The dreams kept after him like hounds on a possum. Time came, he decided he couldn't let it go another night or he'd be too tired to drive at all. He tanked up on coffee and diesel and headed back out to Gallup in the Devil's Highway. At first, he thought she wouldn't show up. Thought he'd just be driving up and down the highway until he dozed off and she killed him. He just gritted his teeth and kept going. It was tough work. His eyes felt like there was grit up under them and the engine noise started sounding like it was trying to say something, distract him. She didn't show up until almost midnight. Then BAM, there she was, standing like before right at the side of the road. He uses the engine brake and the rig starts jumping and screaming like it's about to come apart. He's trying so hard to slow down and pull her to the shoulder, but he does it, and he jumps out and she's gone, just like the first time. Thing is, he knows her name. So he walks back into the dust and he yells out, Sakio! And the third time he says it, there she is. So he's seeing her up close now and there's no way he can pretend she's alive. Her skin's all pale and thin as paper. Her eyes are moving, but they're black all through. There's things moving in her hair. She's standing there by the side of the road, all red from the back lights, looking at him, waiting. And he knows if he wants to see morning, he'd better talk pretty damn fast. Look, Sakio, he says, I heard all about what happened to you and your people and all, and I'm real sorry about it, but I didn't do it. The girl just looks at him, doesn't say a damn thing. He can feel the hate coming off her like hot off a fire, so he holds out the newspaper the queer gave him. Right there on the page, one above the fold, it's all about the Israeli Air Force pounding the shit out of Egypt. The girl doesn't look at it, but Williams holds it out to her all the same. You're pissed off I'm on your land, right? He says. Here's the thing. I ain't got no from to go back to. Maybe my grandpa or his grandpa came from off in Europe someplace, but I'm from America. I'm from here, see? She takes a step toward him, and all he wants in the world is to run like hell away from there. But he holds his ground and says, Maybe you kill me, okay? But what good's that do? You gonna make all this around here just as messed up as they are over in the Middle East? That what you want for your people? Have them still fighting a thousand years from now? Now she looks down. I don't figure she can read English, but she looks at the paper all the same. William starts to get this feeling that maybe he's getting to her, so he keeps going. Your people got fights enough right now, he says. You don't let go of the old ones. We're going to be doing this forever. Now maybe he scored a point with her by showing how the Jews were still fighting thousands of years after they got back from their exile. Or maybe she was just tired, or, or maybe a ghost just loses its power when you face it down, and the Jews and all that were just something the queer gave Williams to give him courage. Either way, Sakio turned away from him and walked out into the night. Williams never did see her again, and he never had the dream again, either. Now, it's true when he took his shirt off that night, he found a handprint on his chest right over his heart. It was black as ink, about the size of the girl's hand, and it never did come off. But that was the worst he got out of it, thanks to the queer. So when his bumps chased Corrine off, the Swede started thinking maybe he could find somebody like that to help him out, too. The back door swung open, old wood barking against the side of the house. Uncle Dab looked back over his shoulder as my little sister Joni led the women of the family out into the thick night air. Abby's lemon cream dress seemed to glow in the darkness as Aunt Mary walked with her. I sat forward, trying to interpret Abby's expression in the dim light. The kid cousins, water-soaked and grass-stained, swarmed toward the women and were shooed away into the house. A dozen bare feet pounded across the boards of the back porch. Satellites, I said with a sigh. She pulls us out two or three times a week to look for one. At the edge of the lawn, Joni was pointing up at the star-filled sky. Abby and Aunt Mary and the others were following her gaze, eight women peering up into the darkness. Abby raised her hand as if to shade her eyes, and the engagement ring glittered on her finger.
Aunt Mary leaned over and said something to her in particular, and Abby shook her head. Her sleeve was riding up, and the smallest arc of ink showed at the edge of the cloth. I bit my lip. Dab sucked on a cigar and chuckled. You ought to tell your sister how smart she is doing something like that, Dab said. It's not hard, I said. There are websites you go to. Just give them your latitude and longitude, and they give you times. You ought to tell her anyway, Dab said. More times you tell something, the more it gets true. Ah, there. Look at that, will you? In the high, dark arch above us, a star caught fire. It moved slowly across the sky, slower than a meteor, and never consumed by its own flame. The women of the family murmured admiration, and Joni grinned as brightly as the star. Abby looked over at us, followed my gaze, and tugged her dress back into place. She mouthed, Thank you. And I touched my finger to my eye in our covert sign that meant, I love you. Beautiful, Dab said, still looking at the sky. That's just beautiful. Now then, where was I? Oh yeah, the Swede. Well now, the Swede started off looking for someone who could give him a hand. Thing is, folks like the queer aren't common. Oh, there's people who say they've got the hoodoo or the Holy Spirit or what have you. But most of those are liars and thieves who are just too small time to start a bank. I'd like to say it didn't take him too long, but the fact was the Swede took the better part of a year going one place and another. He got his energy balanced and his aura looked at and one thing and another. There was one time he had this guru fellow who had him eating nothing but onion soup for the better part of a month. Poor old Swede had this shit so bad, he couldn't get through half a shift without the foreman giving him hell for being in the john all the time. He even took a week off and drove to New Mexico to look for the queer. Found the diner all right, but by then something must have happened because there wasn't anyone sitting at the back table. No one there would talk about it, so he had to just come on back. Must have taken him five or six months before he found someone that could actually help out. There was this Mexican fellow had a reputation for performing miracles, but so did a lot of people the Swede had already been to. This one called himself a curandero and worked out of a little shop down where all the Mexicans live. Going down there was just like stepping into Juarez. All the signs were in Spanish, all the flags were Mexican, and he didn't find many cops around. Well, the Swede was just about covered in bumps by this point, all over his back and his legs and his belly, crawling up his neck now too. And there were nights he said he could hear them talking, just like Corrine had. So even though the Swede wasn't one to think much of Mexicans as a rule, he took his balls in his hand and went down. The place was really little, and it had a Mexican butcher shop one side of it, and the bail bonds officer on the other. The Swede said the place smelled like hot chocolate and blood. And dark? It was so dark in there he couldn't tell what might be in the shadows. The curandero was a big fella. Fat, and I mean huge. Maybe three and a half, four hundred pounds. Tell you something about people that fat? They're strong. They gotta be. So anyway, the Swede walks in and there's this fucking mountain of a Mexican in a Hawaiian shirt the size of a tent, talking Spanish into the telephone too fast to follow. The Swede waits a minute, but the curandero just starts waving his hand at the Swede like he's saying, Look around, look around, I'll be right with you. The Swede's eyes are getting used to the dark by now. Things start coming into focus, and the crap that's in there just about makes him walk right back out. There's a stuffed cat with all the fur gone laying there, covered in dust. There's something that looks like a snake, but it's made out of silver, scales and all, and it's moving so he can't tell if it's a clockwork or something alive. The thing that catches his attention the most, though, is this mason jar. Looks like it's full of whiskey, but there's something white floating in it. Looks like a little girl doll made out of smoke. The Swede picks it up and turns it, and he sees how the little doll doesn't have a back to it. Hollow as an Easter rabbit. The curandero gets done with whoever he was talking to, hangs up the phone and says, What can I do for you, sir? Well, half of the Swede's brain is saying, Put down the bottle and get the hell out, and I mean now. But the other half is thinking that maybe this one's the real deal. Between the two ideas, the Swede sort of freezes up, doesn't say anything. The big fella comes toward him, He's got to outweigh the Swede by something like three to one, and he's a head taller to boot. He sees what it is the Swede's holding, and he nods like he's agreeing with something the Swede hasn't even said yet. I remember her, is what the big fella says. 
Must have been ten years ago now. You hear about her? The fellow's voice is low and deep, like a pit bull's that's just starting to growl in the back of its throat. The Swede shakes his head and puts down the mason jar. The little smoke doll inside starts swishing back and forth, like maybe she's dead and drowned. The curandero puts his hand over it, one hand, and it covers the whole jar like a gumdrop. That's too bad, he says. I wanted to know how it came out. Well, by this time, the Swede's lucky he can say anything, and he sure as hell can't come up with something clever. He just repeats the last few words he's heard. How it came out? Like it was a question. The big fellow puts the jar back on the shelf where it was before and leans against the old wood table, and he sighs and he starts telling the Swede about this girl. This was back when the curandero was out west, California, not too far from San Jose. It was winter then and even a little snow on the ground. Got dark early. So when this girl came into the shop right before he was fixing the clothes up, it was already dark as night outside. Thing was, the girl was an Anglo. Now, he wasn't stupid. He knew a white girl all by herself coming to see a Mexican witch doctor. Well, it wasn't a sign that things were going too well for her. Girl was maybe 15, reddish hair and green eyes, and thin, but not skinny. Had that look kids get when they've just about done growing up, but haven't just started growing out, if you see what I mean. Well, this would have been the early December of 62 or 63, so he pretty much knew on sight what was going on. He waved her in, gave her a chair and a cup of coffee, and waited till she worked up the guts to tell him how she was pregnant, and she needed to get it taken care of before Daddy found out. Took her about 20 minutes. Well, it was what you might expect. Girl had fallen for some fellow, said he loved her, and she believed him. Hell, it might even have been true, at the time at least. Then things went too far, and now she was ruined. If her folks found out, they'd kill her. It was the old, old story, and we all heard it a hell of a lot more back before girls got the pill, let me tell you. Anyway, listen to the girl talk, didn't say anything one way or the other. Oh, he maybe nodded now and then, kept things on track, and when she finished up, she took $20 out of her pocket and gave it to him. Some of it was in quarters. Probably everything she'd saved since she was a baby. Girl never cries. All through this, never sheds a single tear. He thinks about it, and he looks at her, and then he goes into his back room and gets this mason jar ready. It's whiskey and a little blood. He brings it out to the girl, puts her hand in it, and they say some words together. He tells her about this particular statue of the Virgin Mary. It's a fair way from where they are, at an old church no one used anymore. He draws her a map on a piece of paper and everything. It's easy to find, he tells her, because almost all the statues of the Madonna, she's wearing a blue cloak. This one, her cloak is red. He tells her she needs to sleep with the jar in her bed with her for two nights. Then on the third night, she's got to break an egg, pour in just the white, and then bury the jar at the Red Virgin's feet. That night, she's got to sleep in the churchyard, and then dig the bottle back up and bring it to him. Well, the girl doesn't talk back or complain or anything. She just picks up the jar and walks out into the night, so he finishes closing up. Keeps the $20, too. Man's got to make rent. Well, three days passed, and the girl didn't come back. The curandero, he kept expecting to see her, even stayed late a couple of days, just in case. Then, when she didn't show, he figured maybe she got cold feet. Changed her mind. But then Christmas Eve rolled around, and there she was at his door. This jar hugged under her coat. He didn't say anything, just let her come in. When she took the jar out, the egg white was there, floating in the whiskey, all cooked up and it looked then just like it did when the Swede picked it up. A little hollow girl. So the girl, the real one, she nods at it and asks, Is that her? Is that my baby? And the curandero shakes his head and sits down and says, No, miss, that's you. In the darkened yard, my sister laughed too loud. The sound forced and abrasive. Abby crossed her arms, her mouth in a half-smile that meant trouble. I shifted forward in my chair. Dab's cane slapped on my thigh. His eyes were narrow and angry. I'm starting to think you ain't listening to me, son, he said. I'm not telling you all this just to hear my own voice. Then why are you doing it, I wanted to say. But instead I squeaked out. Sorry. Go on. 
That's better. You see, the Red Virgin had power and a history, but when the Curandero sent the girl out to her, he never said that it would kill out the baby, because that would have been a lie. Not that he couldn't have done the thing, mind you, nor not that he wouldn't. He'd done worse things than that before, only he wanted to do the girl a favor, even if it was the hard kind. Way back when the Spanish were running the missions up the coast and King Ferdinand was kicking all the Jews out of Spain, there'd been this sculptor named Severo Munoz lived there. No one local quite knew why old Severo had left Spain and come out to live at the ass end of the world, but there were plenty of guesses. He wasn't a good man, drinking and whoring and beating folks up, well, that was pretty much the standard. Severo was something past that. He'd killed about a dozen folks that everyone knew about raped a few, did things to the Indians thereabout just because he could. Thing was, Severo was damned good at what he did. The governor of New Spain down in Mexico City, he'd seen a fallen angel Severo carved out of a block of pine bigger than a man, and he'd liked it. Well, Severo gave that angel to the governor, and afterward, the law wouldn't touch him. The way the story went, God watched over the mission at San Jose, and one day, Severo was drunk and happy and full of himself, and he had the bad luck to sin when the Lord was in a playful mood. It was a Sunday, and the priest was up saying Mass and all. Severo's in the front pew, drunk and breaking up the service. He'd start talking to the girls next row over, or take down his pants and give his nuts a good scratch, or what have you. The priest put up with all this as long as he could, but right about the time they're getting ready to hand out the Eucharist, Severo cuts the cheese so loud, the whole church is ringing with it. Then he gets the giggles and starts slapping the pew and howling. Well, that's it. The priest puts down the wine and starts cussing Severo out. Says how it's the house of God and Severo's defaming the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And he tells old Severo to get gone. Severo stands up and gives him the bird. He says, if this is the house of God, then let God cast me out of it and everyone gets real quiet. The whole congregation is ready for lightning to come down or the floor to crack out from under him. The priest gets all red in the face, and Severo just holds out his arms like he's shown up God as a pussy that won't take him on. Later on, Severo said he heard someone laughing. No one else did. Everyone else said it was dead quiet, but Severo heard someone in the back laughing his head off. Didn't know who he was. After... He figured it for Jesus laughing, because he knew what was coming next. Well, the priest limped through the rest of the Mass with Severo spitting and calling him shitty names. People started heading out, and there were a bunch of them waiting just outside the church. Men, mostly, and they looked pissed. Now, Severo was dumb, but he wasn't stupid, if you get what I mean. He figured he'd head out the back way, keep himself from getting jumped. Only out back was where God was waiting for him. They knew the dog was Jesus because when all those fellows waiting out in front to beat the snot out of him heard him screaming, they went back and killed it. Dog had a cut on its side and a bunch of scabs all around its head, and all four paws were raw and bloody, like someone had driven nails through it. Now that might have just been the rabies, but happening when it did and all, no one doubted it was divine retribution. Not even Severo. Rabies now, that's a bad way to die can take a couple of weeks between getting bit and knowing you got it. Starts with a fever and just feeling generally sick. Then a fellow gets where he can't drink water, gets anxious and confused, delirious, crazy, then dead, and honest to God, sooner's better than later for that. Well, Severo started showing symptoms just two days after he got bit, and he knew he was screwed. He had maybe a few days left in the world, and he was going to be suffering every minute of every one of them. And he also knew that hellfire was waiting for him if he didn't get right with God. He didn't put it off or beg for mercy or anything like that. Severo was a bad, low, vulgar man, but he was an artist. He got the biggest block of stone he could find on short notice and all his tools, and he laid in to make a tribute to the Virgin Mary like an apology to the Lord for how he'd lived his life. Worked all through the day and night. People started going to watch. Part because no one liked them, and part because everyone had this uneasy feeling that something holy was going on. Well, about the fifth day after he got bit, Severo started talking while he worked. Strange voices, like they weren't really him. 
singing and gibbering, declaiming on religious doctrine and talking dirty. People said it was the devil leaving Severo's body, said they were watching him turn into a saint. So by the time he finishes the statue, he's pretty much gone, but she's beautiful. There's this radiant, serene Madonna, born out of a dying man's madness. Just at the end, he paints her, but instead of blue, he paints a red, and then he collapses at her feet. Last thing he says is, I have seen myself in her eyes. That's what they put on his grave. I have seen myself in her eyes. Ever since then, strange things happen around the Red Virgin. The Curandero, he tells the girl about some of these too. There's the fellow right around the turn of the century about to get married and the Red Virgin shook her head at him. Turned out the girl he was sweet on, his daddy'd been messing around with her mother. Red Virgin kept him from getting hitched up with his half-sister. Or this old fellow just after World War II who came back with shell shock, didn't know who he was until he spent a night sleeping at the Red Virgin's feet. What the Curandero tells the girl is, That statue is a mirror. Sometimes we all forget who we are, or we get blind to it. And he points to the hollow girl in the mason jar. This is what you've become. Now the girl looks at it, knowing what she didn't know before, and she nods. Her face is blank, just empty. The curandero knows she's right on the edge. Maybe she's going to kill the baby like she wanted at the start. Maybe she's going to hold on to it after all. And he just sits there with her. He knows that the girl's screwed either way. She can't win. Best she can do is lose a little less one way than another. Well, what she says is, give me another one. The curandero doesn't ask for money or what she's going to do. He just goes in the back, gets a second jar, puts in the blood, puts in the whiskey. He brings it out and they say some words over it. And then the girl goes out with it and she never comes back. That's why I was hoping you knew what happened, the curandero says, and the Swede shakes his head. All in all, they've been talking for maybe an hour at this point, and somewhere along the way, the Swede stopped being quite so scared. He can come up with things to say now. So the Swede says, You didn't cure her, though. She came to you for something. You didn't do it. And the big Mexican gets the soft look on his face. She came to me looking to be healed, is what he says. I never heal anybody, I only do what I can. And then God heals them or else he doesn't. And that, it turns out, is exactly what the Swede needed to hear. He said it was like he'd been twisting and turning trying to make a peace fit when it was supposed to go, and that what the Curandero said was what made it all click into place. After that, he could tell the big fellow about Corrine and about the bumps and how they'd been spreading and talking and moving. The Curandero had him take off his shirt, and he looked at the bumps for a long time, went and got the stethoscope just like he was a real doctor, and listened to them talking. Then the Curandero put down his stuff and just talks to the Swede, talks about Corrine and what she was like, how he felt about her, what it felt like to fuck her, what it felt like to wake up with her, what it felt like when she was gone. They talked about the boys back at the machine shop, and what it was like working with whites. They talked about Minnesota and Africa and the South. The Curandero got a Coke for the Swede and a big bowl of beans and chili for himself, and they sat around and chewed the fat just like they were old friends. Time comes, the Curandero finishes his beans, and he leans back in his chair and he says, You've been injured. What your body's doing is trying to deal with the rage and the anger. And the Swede crosses his arms and he frowns real hard and he says, how do you figure? I didn't break anything or get hurt. I'm not mad at anyone in particular. The Curandero shakes his great big head and he says, You are a black man in America. That's injury enough. Well, the Swede doesn't quite know what to say back to that, but he's gotten to where he likes the big Mexican enough to let it go. The Curandero, he keeps talking. He says, I can help you with the rage, but the hurt that caused it in the first place... That's for God. And the Swede points to the bumps on his arm and says, Will it get rid of these? And the Curandero says it will, so the Swede claps his hands and says, Let's get to it. The Curandero, he goes and roots around in the back. There's noises that sound like knives getting sharpened. 
and someone singing that wasn't the big fella. Smells like rain and overheated iron. Well, it's only about ten minutes before the big guy comes back to the front dragging this massage table. You know the kind with a headrest you can look down through it? Like that. And he tells the Swede to get naked and lay down on the table with his face on the rest looking down. Two hours before, the Swede had been too scared of this man to talk straight. But now, it's like they're old friends. Brothers. The Swede shucks off his clothes and lays himself down, and the curandero comes and starts putting little weights on all the bumps all over his back and legs and arms and neck. Curandero's muttering something in Spanish under his breath. So the Swede winds up with these little weights everywhere, he's maybe got 10, 15 pounds all told, and the curandero stops and sits back. Okay, the big fellow says, this part is going to hurt some. And the Swede figures he's going to press on one of the bumps or cut it open or some such. He nods and he gets ready for it, but he's got it wrong. That wasn't the kind of hurt the big guy meant. Instead, just like that, the Swede feels the sorrow rising up in his chest like a flood. He starts crying, like a kid whose mama just died, and he can't even say why. And the thing is, he never stopped. Last time I saw the Swede was three, maybe four years ago. He's all white hair now, just like me, and he's still crying. Not bawling, but weeping, a little all the time. Like he's got a slow leak. The bumps went away and Corrine came back. They've got three kids and something like eight grandkids. Love each other no end. Got a nice house and good lives, but the Swede can't stop crying. And I'll tell you, I expect when he dies... His body will keep right on weeping even once he's done with it. Uncle Dad paused, looking at the spent stub of his black cigar. He looked out to the edge of the lawn where the women still stood in the darkness, almost invisible now as if the night had drawn them away from us. When Dab spoke again, his voice had lost the energy of his story. He sounded almost touched by dread. America's a border town. All of it, east to west, north to south, Texas and Kansas and Alaska, it's all border town. We got the people who were here before us, we took it from, we got the people coming here after looking to take it from us, and all of us got our stories to make sense of it. Sometimes those fit together, sometimes they don't. It's a mess. Scares me sometimes, it truly does, but I see how it gives us a chance, too. Gives us wiggle room where we try to make it all make sense. You see what the Kudondero did, don't you? He couldn't bring back King, but he could change what it was to the Swede. Could trade out sorrow for rage. Black folks in America, even ones like the Swede, they got a particular kind of wound. Indians like that Sakio girl, they got one too. Hell, maybe we all do, but not like them. And they can't heal it any more than we can. All anyone can do is change what the wound means. That's what folks like the Kudondero and the Queer can do. They can change what stories mean. That's why they've got power. You understand what I'm saying to you? You understand why I'm telling you this? Sure, I said. You do not, he said, stabbing at the air between us. Look here, I ask you to tell me about meeting the love of your life, and you tell me one thing led to another? What the hell is that supposed to mean? This Abby girl, she seems like a fine woman. I like her. But you two don't have a chance in hell, you hear me? Not a single solitary chance in hell. If you came here telling me you were getting married, and you had a 16-year-old Chinese hooker on your arm seven months in with someone else's baby, but you had a good story about it, I'd think you might make it. You come here with this girl and you love her. I'm not a fool, I can see you love her. But that love doesn't mean anything. And if it doesn't, it will wither and it will die. And you'll be here three years from now telling me about the divorce and how one fucking thing just led to another. And please, Jesus, you're not changing a diaper while you do it. The contempt in his voice was like a slap. He drew one last long pull on his cigar, the ember bright and angry under its darkening ash, then threw the dead butt out onto the lawn. The scent of smoke was acrid and close. I tried to laugh to make a joke of it, but the sound was hollow. I don't know what to say, I said. 
think of something, Dab said, and the anger was cut by a sense that he was pleading with me now. I opened my mouth and then closed it. Aunt Mary's voice came out of the gloom, white as a whale. Dab? You didn't just soil my yard with your leavings, did you? After all this time, I did not just see you throw your disgusting old cigar on my grass. Now, darling, Uncle Dab said with a grin, you know what's good for it. Nicotine's a pesticide. Keeps the chiggers down. Aunt Mary and the other women of the family came up onto the porch. The old wood creaked under them, and Aunt Mary swatted Dab gently on the back of his head. From inside, we could hear the electronic sounds of the kid cousins at play. Abby detached herself from my mother and sister and came to sit at my side. She looked beautiful. All the small signals of unease that had haunted her, the thinning of her lips, the lines at the corners of her eyes, had vanished. She was among my family now, no longer that northern girl I'd been seeing but my fiancé. The same woman, but her meaning changed. I wondered what it would be like to lose her. I thought I knew, and the fear was like a hand laid gently across my throat. She tilted her head, a question in her eyes. And what have you two been talking about all night, she asked. We've been trading stories, is all Uncle Dab said. Matter of fact, he was just getting set to tell me about how you two met. Abby's brow rose, a tiny half-smile. Amusement, apprehension, pleasure touched her lips. I was halfway to denying it when she spoke. Really, she said. I'd like to hear that. The eyes of the family, all of them including Abby's, turned to me. Uncle Dab folded his hands over his belly, his eyes upon me, daring me, goading me, praying for me. My heart thumped like sneakers in a dryer. My mouth tasted like tinfoil and pennies. I didn't have the first clue what to say. I looked at Abby, then at Dab. He nodded me on. Well, I said, trying to keep my voice from trembling. Actually, it's a pretty good story. I'm the son of an English teacher, and as a result, I grew up surrounded by literary giants. I didn't always know them, but I could usually bluff them pretty well, as I found out when, age ten, my primary school teacher asked me what I thought of the loneliness of the long-distance runner. If she'd asked me which was my favourite autobot, it was Ironhide, by the way, I would have been fine, but I was slightly at a loss. I took a chance. I said I liked it, and she was pleased, and later, when I finally saw the film, I was pleased to see I actually had prescient good taste. I still hold out on Ironhide, by the way. But... A couple of books stuck with me far more than any others. The first, rather oddly, is Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome, the quietly wonderful story of three slightly, and by slightly I mean largely, incompetent students and their dog, making their way down the rivers of England. The other was, somewhat unsurprisingly, Hamlet. I've read the play, heard it, and seen everyone from Mel Gibson to David Tennant play the tortured prince. Every time it's the same story but every time it's a different story, reflected through a different prism, a different set of faces and voices and ideas that somehow still form into that same timeless series of events. It's about as close to immortality as we get, a story so pure and yet so complex that everyone can find something different in it. For me, the real attraction in Hamlet is the double act of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Hamlet's luckless friends from university are usually played either as knowing stooges or doomed innocents, nice, slightly dim, privileged young men with no idea of what they've stumbled into. There's one version, though, that paints them in a very different light. Tom Stoppard's unprecedented and magnificent play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, explores the idea that the two men are actually complete fishes out of water, utterly bewildered how they came to be at Elsinore, let alone involved in the intricate political chess game being played between Hamlet and Claudius. They're pawns who are clever enough to know there are other ways to move around the board, but can't quite work out how. The comical tragedy and tragical comedy of their lives rendered down to one simple fact. They were sent for. They will always be sent for. The students of Three Men in a Boat, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and the characters Daniel presents here all exist in the same place, 
the place behind the world, but before the absence of the world, where the rules are a little different, where you can see the gaps in the scenery, and if you're very lucky, what your next line will be. It's not the high epic fantasy or horror that we're used to, but rather something closer to real life, just with added bonuses, the sort of place where Cormac McCarthy and Neil Gaiman can rub shoulders with the Winchester brothers. It's not an easy place to live, but it's an intoxicating place to visit, and I'm very, very grateful to Daniel for letting me spend time there. Podcastle, in its beautiful, wide, open grounds, is merely one of the places to visit in Escapetopia. Far, far above us is the Escape Pod Command satellite, where the best in science fiction is mined from passing asteroids on a weekly basis, whilst over to the east, on the horizon, sits a dense, black wall of cloud, a storm that never quite breaks. That's Pseudopod Towers, where labs crackle with energy meant to revive things that should not be, and village mobs buy their flaming torches and pitchforks in bulk for the discount. Horror is our business, and business is good. And by good, I mean... Three podcasts, three genres, and three sets of authors mean we rely on you to pay those authors. You're an astonishing audience, very willing, very generous, and without you, we wouldn't be here. It's really that simple. So thank you once again for your support, and if you liked this story, please consider donating at the website. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. And Podcastle wants you to know that it spent the last few years building up an immunity to Iocane powder. Francis Quarles said, Beware of him that is slow to anger, for when it is long coming, it is the stronger when it comes, and the longer kept. Abused patience turns to fury. <laughs>